This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Hosting a daily morning podcast show is taxing on both the mind and the body, especially when it comes to loading up on carbs, sugars, and other unhealthy breakfast foods. So I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have discovered my new breakfast of choice, Magic Spoon. With its zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving, Magic Spoon is healthy and delicious cereal. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And it comes in four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and my own personal favorite, blueberry. Magic Spoon, cereal that tastes too good to be true. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash keen on to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code KEENON at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash KEENON and use the code KEENON for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon Podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is December the 29th. Uh, welcome back to the show. We have been off air for four or five days, which is a record in Keen On shows. It's usually a daily show. I'm having a break, which made me feel rather guilty. Uh, broadcasters, especially daily broadcasters, uh, tend to be very ambivalent about off time, and we're not very keen on, to excuse the pun, the idea of laziness. Today, we are indeed talking about the issue of, of laziness in a cultural sense, whether it's acceptable, whether it isn't, how we should be thinking about laziness in 2020 and beyond. Uh, my guest on the show is Devon uh, Price, uh, uh, and they are the author of Laziness Does Not Exist, a new book which is very provocative about I think, and, I, and I'm not. I'm not. I hope I'm not putting words in Devon's mouth, arguing that laziness is a is a cultural construct which we should be fighting against. Um, Devon, is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair, Andrew. It's really um, an idea that is used to browbeat people and to kind of further their exploitation of labor. 
labor and their time and their attention. That if you take a break, if you resist and say no to something, that it's because there's some moral failure, some rot inside of you that you need to be really ashamed of. Instead of us just kind of learning to recognize that everyone right now is being demanded and really historically for a very long time has been demanded to do far too many things. And when too much is asked of a person, they're always going to feel like they're not coming up, that they're coming up short. And so they're always going to feel lazy, even if they're doing an incredible, unsustainable amount. Uh, Devin, one of the things that intrigued me about your book, and it's, it's a very original book, is your archaeology of the concept of laziness. You go back to the 16th century and then touch on the associations and laziness and the origins of capitalism, which, of course, brings up the greatest book of all, uh, about the idea of laziness, Max Weber's uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Uh, how much of your book was driven by the Weberian analysis of Puritanism and work, Devon? Um, you know, I think it, it's, it's a driving force, certainly, but I think also it's driven by um, an awareness of how hatred of laziness is uh, wrapped up also in enslavement in American history as well. So, so the the history of Puritanism and the Protestant work ethic is a really core part of how in American culture we've come to equate working hard and really suffering with virtue. But I think also in in saying that, I don't want to either downplay the fact that part of why it became so sticky in American culture and spread so strongly was because. Uh, hatred of laziness and valorizing work really justified exploiting enslaved people and then exploiting indentured servants and then kind of pitting working class whites against uh, black people after abolition and all of those things. So it's there's a variety of factors, but that's definitely a huge, huge root to it. When I was reading the book, Devon, I, I, I take your point on the issue of enslavement, but it occurred to me when I was reading it that the the planter class, as, as Wikipedia has it, the, the slave owners of 18th and 19th century America, their construct, if you like, their self-identity was rooted on laziness, on the idea of forcing people, particularly people of, 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 of another skin color, to work. How, um, how problematic is the aristocratic ethic of idleness, of laziness, in terms of your argument. Yeah, I think um, there is always this weird uh, moral hazard or, or something that I, I feel in writing about this stuff, because it is my book is, you know, published in the self-help space, even though it's also criticism of, of sociological problems, that I don't want the message to only get to the people who have the privilege to set limits in their day and have the kind of wealth that make it very easy for them to kind of be more idle than the people that are making the world run. So I, I think that is, it is a problem, but I also think that um, the cultural myths that we have that kind of valorize hard work have gotten to the point where even among people who are really wealthy and privileged are, are usually trying to use busyness as kind of a, a status symbol and a sign of importance. That's something that's kind of changed in recent decades, mm. that, um, that idleness isn't really exalted and seen as something that's aristocratic and sophisticated anymore. Really, you're supposed to seem like you're constantly grinding and, and busy. And I think that message 
even when kind of wealthy elites are kind of like spreading that message, it then kind of trickles down into us having a lot of media messages that kind of the average working person absorbs that equate, okay, I need to be, you know, if I want to be successful, I need to be like this person. I need to work really hard and kind of hmm. basically bootstraps logic. So, so I think that concern is definitely there, but I think ultimately an ethos that's about being compassionate and trusting people and kind of putting giving people the autonomy to set limits in their lives that's something that we so so desperately need that kind of moving away from any cultural pressure that equates toil with with being a virtuous person i think is still is still really important right now yeah i think your point's a really interesting one um uh, I, this is borrowed from wikipedia on slave society saying that high culture now considered um the, the, the aristocracy was rooted on the in the idea of idleness, which has always historically been true. But today's aristocracy, the the Elon Musk's and Peter Thiel's and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos's of the work. Bezos is a particularly good example. The richest man in the world, worth hundreds of billions of dollars, probably will be the first trillionaire. He hasn't retired. He still works sixteen-hour days. What accounts for this? cultural transformation, Devon, between a ruling class that idealized leisure in the 19th century and a ruling class in the 21st century that fetishizes work? You know, I'm not sure exactly what the turning point was, but I think a lot of the myths that we have about tech entrepreneurs being these self-made people working out of their garages are a big part of what made it um, that's when we started to really see it kind of become a major cultural meme, I guess I would say, even though even in just dealing in those narratives, we're erasing the fact that every single Steve Jobs of the world had a ton of financial support and seed money and, you know, family backing them up as they were supposedly working out of a garage. Well, and in fairness to Steve Jobs, and, and, and uh, I'm no great defender of him. I mean, he was self-made. He wasn't from a wealthy family, but and the same with Bezos. But at the same time, that's not necessarily an excuse for their obsession with work and their moral justification for work right yeah and and those that seems to be a period when that particular and in the tech sector and as kind of tech originated kind of wealth or entrepreneurs who, who got a lot of their wealth from tech uh, i think that became a new flavor of the horatio alger bootstraps myth that since we already had the infrastructure kind of in american culture and mythology to kind of be predisposed to liking that uh, kind of story and having that story kind of indoctrinated into us as as a reason why hard work was valuable i think that's why it was so easy to to latch on to those narratives um, and that seems to have been a major turning point, but I certainly think it did exist before then. I think in the industrial era, as industrialization was setting in, we had, again, Horatio Alger, we had, and then after that kind of Conrad Hilton kind of figures of these people who were uh, wealthy industrialists who were had some kind of story of here are how I made the right decisions that explain why I deserve my wealth and here's how dogged and hardworking I was. And, um, you know, we even see that in like Thomas, the mythology around like Thomas Edison and things like that too, the kind of inventor myth. Um, De Devin, we had the, uh, the, the, the environmentalist Jason Hickel on the show uh, a few days ago, who argues that 
the problem with the environment is capitalism. His book, Less is More, is a kind of environmental version in some ways of your book about laziness. To what extent is your book itself a critique of capitalism? Are you suggesting that one can't be lazy in capitalism, that we need to rethink the very foundations of our economic system? Yeah, I absolutely consider the book a anti-capitalist book. Again, even though it is kind of in the in the self-help space, I think fundamentally most people can't self-help individual decision their way out of this problem because uh, structurally we're just forced to work far more uh, than we really ever have in recent documented history for far less. And with things like digital work-life interference and the gig economy, these things only seem to be getting worse and worse. Um, so I really do see it as a problem where structurally capitalism thrives on people hating laziness. It really browbeats people into viewing any exhaustion, burnout, revoking consent from doing something as laziness and as sinful. And really the only way to truly liberate people from those ideologies is to dismantle capitalism. This is a theme which we're going to pursue tomorrow. We're talking to Dale Maharaj, the author of another interesting book, Fucked at Birth. We're allowed to say that on this show when uh, when the, the title of the book says that, uh, which is about the growing underclass in America. Uh, and, 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 uh, and I understand your argument, um, Devon, but there seem to be a couple of contradictions in terms of yourself. Firstly, as you argue in the book, as you reveal in the book, you are the child of underprivileged. You're from Appalachia. Your parents were or are working class. You're self-made. You have a, a PhD. I'm not putting the PhD into your title just for fun. The, that appears uh, uh, in the book itself. You are presented as Devon Price PhD, which reflects hard work. Uh, so you're an example of someone who has indeed raised themselves by their hard work. Now, I know you've also rebelled against the culture of work, but how, how would you get around that? What would you say to the people who stayed in Appalachia, who, 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 who are uh, opioid addicts or totally unemployed and, 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 and are homeless, the, the very uh, the, the, the fucked at birth uh, class which now dominates the underclass in America? Yeah. Um, so the first thing that I would say is that I didn't work myself into the position that I'm in. You know, I um, I lived in a suburb that uh, had a really good gifted education program. I was able to take college classes when I was in high school, which made it possible for me to graduate college early. I, I went to one of the best psychology undergrad programs in the United States at Ohio State University and had a lot of support in figuring out how I wanted to get to graduate school. And I also didn't choose to have whatever, you know, academic intelligence level that I have, you know, um, these things aren't moral decisions that people make. And even things like uh, the workaholism that I that I do have that I talk about in the book, it's not like I really chose to have those preferences or to have that kind of capacity. And so when I look at people that I went to high school with, and a lot of them um, are living in Ohio in areas where um, income inequality is is really rough. Unemployment is really staggering. There is massive opioid addiction, lots of problems. I just um, see myself as one of the few people who had a combination of some some advantages and personality quirks and also good fortune to kind of 
to kind of get out of it. And um, but so it I really fortune was it, Devon? I mean, you 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 chose to get out of it. You put many hours, as you say in the book, and in, in some ways regretfully, you put many hundreds, thousands of hours into your PhD, which enabled you to write this book and be on this show. I put I've put hours into things, but you know when I look at at people that I went to high school with who had to put hours and hours and hours into raising kids from a really young age, you know I didn't have to do that. I lived alone in a studio, and uh, I also didn't I did a lot of things that were kind of unhealthy for me while I was working on my PhD. I wasn't socializing. I wasn't taking care of myself and my community holistically. So I think you know even the people that we kind of can hold up as oh, they, they worked hard and they achieved great things. There's such a network of, of social supports that explain it and factors that are outside of their control. And so it's really hard for me to say that I, that there was some kind of quality in me that is superior to those other people. And, you know, if the vast majority of people in similar circumstances weren't able to kind of break out of whatever cycles they're kind of, uh, families kind of were traditionally stuck in, that suggests that, you know, these systems are, are perpetuating themselves and the majority of people aren't able to escape. So even if you do find a few people that you can kind of twist the narrative, if you erase all the times that people helped them and all the times that social supports helped them, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really show that things are, are working just because every now and then a few of us, I really have survivor's guilt about it. I feel like I'm one of the few people who just like just you know, slipped past all of these blades that are kind of impaling everybody else around me. Uh, the the subtitle of da Dale Maharidge's book is is recalibrating the American dream, and you're a critic also of the American dream. I wonder if there's a cultural element to your critique. I mean, your critique is itself cultural, but does it reflect an increasing despair in America amongst the middle classes, which itself is worrying? Uh, a couple of months ago, we had Maura Guilen, the, the, the Chicago-based futurist on the show, talking about his book, 2030. And he says that one of the things that will distinguish 2030 from 2020 is that by in 10 years' time, we're going to need to keep up with the sings and the wangs, the, the new middle class, probably work addicted in India and China. So for better or worse, if if America begins to question its work ethic and the American dream, is that only going to compound American decline and make America less and less powerful in the face of a growing China and India? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. So there's this traumatic kind of response of almost learned helplessness that people tend to develop when they've either perceive or you know correctly identify that they're in a situation where a lot of their choices aren't paying off and they're kind of they have limited choices and things it seems like their efforts don't really matter so there is this mass despair that psychologically we can kind of understand how it happens and that we also see in a lot of survey research that a lot of people's biggest worries today now are just kind of amorphously about the future or not having a future and there is a really dismal outlook of the future in millennials, Zoomers, and kind of generations on down. But um, I, I don't know that there's, a, I don't know that it necessarily makes sense to talk about, can we kind of change that outlook in and of itself, or is that outlook in and of, of itself having an effect on the future of the US? Because I think it's more, um, it's just, it's symptomatic of 
the structural issues that we have in this country that make it very rational for a lot of people, unfortunately, to feel like their efforts aren't paying off. And so if we really want to, to deal with that, we really need to give people things to hope for and give people a safety net where they feel like if they if they try to achieve something that they're they're going to be okay or just that their society is going to take care of them you know and that they don't have to prove their worth as human beings and i think until we really lay down some of those structures we are going to really have mass dis despair because it is a very reasonable understandable reaction to the reality that a lot of people are living not just mass despair but also mass i wouldn't say insanity but, but mass mental illness your book is laced with stories of people who are mentally troubled as a consequence of, of hard work. We had, uh, this is a brilliant book, Hidden Valley Road, the author Robert Kolker on the show, Inside the Mind of, uh, Mind of an American Family, which was a, an American family of 12 children. Six of them were mentally ill and a couple of them died. They were crazy. And, and, and we talked a lot about the, the meaning of that in a broader sense, in your view, uh, you know, America isn't necessarily becoming Hidden Valley Road, but in your sense, is our obsession with work creating a country of insanity? Yeah, so I think to really understand this, we have to kind of think about the ways in which where how we define mental illness is largely shaped by a person's ability to function. That's one of the criteria for basically every mental illness in the DSM. And how do we define functioning? Usually a person's ability to work and maybe also to kind of meet some other societal kind of checkboxes like having a relationship, having a family, those kinds of things, having some kind of stability, whatever. Um, and so if we're creating a reality on for kind of from the top down where it's harder and harder for, for people to function because jobs are getting even more demanding people get less out of those jobs in terms of material benefits and people are are also just kind of being bombarded with sources of stress and trauma um you're, you're creating circumstances where definitionally you're going to have more mental illness and um and the more you raise the bar of what counts as what you have to be doing to be a quote-unquote functional human being the harder it is to kind of survive definitionally, the more mental illness you're going to see. And that's really the position we're in right now. Uh, Devon, I wonder if we can learn from animals on this. We had Carl Safina, the, the naturalist on the show, his new book, Becoming Wild, is, is really a book about how we can learn to raise families, create beauty and achieve peace through non-human species. Can we learn about work? from whales or bees or parrots or chimpanzees? I think so. One thing that I mentioned in the book is just for practicing self-compassion, if you have any compassion for other people, if you have a pet or some animal in your life that you love, you don't love that creature because of anything that it does or any worth that it proves to you. Um, you know, I love my pet chinchilla when he's just a little lump sleeping in the corner just as much as when he's running around or, or doing anything. There's no work that kind of defines the value of his life. So that's one way that I think um, connecting with nature and with animals can help us kind of divorce that uh, tendency so many of us have to equate productivity with value. And I think also, most animals are pretty unneurotic about meeting their needs. We've been taught to kind of doubt our needs and to see tiredness, apathy, annoyance, all of these things as kind of shameful laziness that we need to like counter argue with and try to get rid of in ourselves. 
but if we learn to um, practice as much as we can, trusting our emotions and feelings and our body and minds, just signals of need, I think that's very much what animals do. And that would help us have just more, uh, a more effective self-regulation system, which is better for our mental and physical health. Uh, to end, Devin, let's talk about some fixes to the situation, or at least the situation that you see, the problem. Uh, there was a, a headline this morning from a UK think tank saying a four-day week would be now affordable in 2021 to most firms. Uh, a few months ago, we had Scott Santons, one of the champions of universal basic income on the, on the show. Um, I get your point on capitalism, but the reality is we're not going to dismantle capitalism, at least in the next few years. So are reforms like a shorter work week or UBI, are these the, the, the signposts to a healthier, saner future when it comes to work? I think so. Um, I, I get some of the reservations about UBI or some of the questions people have about how to implement it. But I do always uh, go back to David Graeber's point about how not having means testing for social welfare and social support not only means that everyone kind of has a cushion of protection that they don't need to go through a bureaucracy as much in order to get, but that it can also culturally change how we think about who's deserving of help, that if everybody's already getting universal basic income, they don't need to have this like policing of, oh, why is this person on benefits? They're not really disabled. They're a quote unquote welfare queen, all of these kind of indoctrinated kind of messages we have about policing who, who's deserving of support. So I do think that is really both materially and culturally uh, something that could be really powerful in changing that. And I hope that's true of the four day work week as well. Uh, I, I worry because a lot of corporations, there is already a lot of research that, that has shown that shorter work days lead to greater productivity, but a lot of companies haven't really made policy changes that are in line with that because they do, I think, have this still have an ideology of feeling like they need to police and control their employees. So I think that'll be hard to sell to a lot of companies, but I think absolutely it would it would revolutionize so many people's lives. It may be a distinction between Europe and the and, and the US. In Europe, there is a belief in 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 regulated solutions like the four-day work week or UBI. Whereas in America, perhaps there's more faith in technology. We've had a lot of shows, Devin, about the role particularly of AI in the future when it comes to work. We talked to Brian Christensen, the author of The Alignment Problem. Uh, can AI fix this problem or is, it, is this only gonna make it worse when we have AI doing most of our menial tasks? It seems like historically when something is automated and certain work tasks become streamlined and happen quicker, so far that hasn't translated to workers having an easier life, getting paid more, having more time off. I hope we can break out of that cycle where uh, that we've been on historically, but that has been the case usually, that if something either industrially or digitally is streamlined uh, and made uh, is produced more quickly by technology, that that doesn't translate to making lives easier for humans. And I also do really worry about um, the trend of using technology to surveil workers. So once work from home happened for for a lot of uh, employees during the pandemic, a lot of companies started reaching for screen tracking software, key logging software, even having their employees live stream themselves working over Zoom, just all of these things that uh, they're not even evidence-based. You know, productivity has gone up throughout the pandemic, and yet a lot of employers feel this pressure to 
mistrust people and to try and leach as much productivity out of them as possible. So, so I'm I am worried about uh, the direction we're headed in with regards to technology and and fighting these problems. The age of surveillance capitalism has arrived. We had Shoshana Zubov on the sh on the show, and and that's been a perpetual theme throughout uh, 2020. What about the other role of technology? Devon in, in re-engineering us. We had uh, Eben Kirksey on the show talking about the Mutant Project. We've had a number of shows about CRISPR, this technology software that will allow us to rebuild ourselves. Can we rebuild human beings and take out the, the guilt gene? I I don't know. I mean, my my lens on this is very influenced by the fact that I'm autistic. I don't really talk about this in the book, but uh, in the autistic self-advocacy community, we tend to be pretty wary of any talk about genetic screening because that could kind of lead to just not any more autistic people ever being born, basically, or any kind of uh, genetic modifications that would kind of change the neurodiversity of the human experience. It's tricky because there are aspects of the human experience that are so painful and that if I could just open up my DNA and, and retool it, maybe I would get rid of some of my sensory sensitivities or something like that. But at the same time, I think, uh, I think that's a really dangerous ter territory to be going down because who's going to have the ability to use those options and what kind of human beings are going to find it harder and harder to exist if we're able to modify people in those ways. Devon, I was struck in the book by it seemed your ambivalence about social media and digital technology. On the one hand, you defend the idea of wasting time online. You think that's not necessarily a bad thing. On the other hand, you suggest that the culture, the fetishization of work is something that is perpetuated on social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, my old friend Tiffany Shalane has been on the show several times talking about her new book, 24-6, which is about a, a tech Shabbat, the idea that we should spend a day away from technology. Do you think that might be one healthy way of, of curing us of our, of our work addiction? Yeah, I don't think it's a cure, but I think it is very helpful for retraining our brains and our attention spans. When people are constantly refreshing social media feeds, their attention tends to uh, degrade a little bit, but it's not a permanent change. People can relearn by just sitting down and reading a book, taking a few days offline. So I think we're going to increasingly have to move to a place where that is considered a normal part of a person's kind of mental health habits especially since in addition to the pressure and just kind of overstimulation of social media, we also have the problem of work-life interference, which is just the kind of research term for the fact that I could be, you know, emailing my boss at any time of, of the day or any day of the week, and, you know, she could be emailing me as well. So I, I hope we're moving towards a norm or that we can where people see that as just kind of a regular expectation that almost everybody takes a day off uh, from screen time every week or something like that. Well, I hope you're all going to take at least a day off uh, between now and the end of the year. And one way to enjoy that day off is to read uh, Devon's new book, Laziness Does Not Exist. Really interesting, provocative, original take on the concept of laziness. Uh, Devon, I know you are in uh, Chicago now uh, in these strange times. What else should people be reading in addition to your book? 
So something that I read recently that even though it's 10 years old seemed hyper relevant right now is Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Built in Hell, which is just a series of profiles of how communities come together and support one another in the wake of disasters, mostly natural disasters uh, are what she profiles in that book. And it was so striking to me and so relevant to now because there's so much talk right now regarding COVID of uh, people policing one another's behavior and people looking at the choices of other individuals in bad faith, instead of looking at the fact that we are all coping with a really traumatic, disempowering situation and that we need to kind of be supporting each other as a community. So it was really moving for me right now to be reading these stories of people reaching out and building community in the wake of earthquakes, fires, and the like. Um, and uh, the other things that I've been really reading a lot of lately are a lot of um, David Graeber books, who I already mentioned, but um, Bullshit Jobs is always the first one I recommend to people who haven't read his, his work before because it is so uh, accessible and approachable, just all of the stories of people being caught in really deeply unrewarding work and how we got to the place as a society where a lot of us um, are doing work that feels very meaningless. And that's if we're lucky enough to, to have a job. So. And unfortunately, David Graeber died this year, just a month or two ago. So he's a sad loss. Uh, Devin Price, I want to thank you. A wonderful interview. Uh, and uh, best of luck in 2021. I wish you a happy, healthy, and above all else, a lazy 2021. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good new year. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.